This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, we have another exciting episode in store for you today. But no, I'm not recording with my brother. Uh, instead, I'm recording with Justin Boyle, who is a third-year resident at Queen's University in Internal Medicine and also uh, runs the podcast for all intents and purposes. So, Justin, thank you for agreeing to record on this Friday night in October. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, Justin, take it away. What trial are you going to be discussing? Uh, so today I'll be talking about the waterfall trial, otherwise known as aggressive um, or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. Uh, and it was published by Demandaria et al. And it was very recently published in Nedgem this past September. All right. New England Journal of Medicine. It's a, it's a heavy hitting journal. So this must be an important research question. Uh, but what was the research question here? Yes, so the researchers in the study were really investigating what the safety and efficacy of aggressive fluid resuscitation was compared with moderate fluid resuscitation in a diverse sample of patients with acute pancreatitis um, across a range and severity of disease. Yep, you know, you and I are general internists or you're soon to be a general internist and we see lots of patients with pancreatitis and I can't think of many good randomized trials to inform how we actually manage these patients, which is kind of embarrassing. So why was this important to you? What caught your eye for this study? I think what caught my eye about the study is that moderately severe or severe pancreatitis develops in quite a few number of patients that present with acute pancreatitis in hospital. Um, and really approximately 35% of these individuals with acute pancreatitis uh, go on to develop moderate or severe disease. Um, and really, like you mentioned, there is sort of a paucity of information to really guide how we resuscitate these patients. And really traditionally, the teaching is to give them a really large amount of fluids up front um, without really knowing what those outcomes are. Um, and so really, the bottom line is that early aggressive hydration is really widely recommended for the management of acute pancreatitis. Um, but the evidence for this practice is quite limited. Yep. I remember being being an R1 at uh, St. Michael's Hospital and looking after a really sick patient with uh, pancreatitis in the ICU. And the teaching I got was, you know, treat it similar to how you might treat a patient with a burn, but this is an internal burn. So give them lots and lots of fluids. And I've held on to that approach. But is it right? Oof, I don't know anymore. We're going to find out. What was the study designed for this waterfall trial? Alrighty, so uh, the study design was multi-center, open-label, parallel group, and randomized. Um, so it was an RCT, and the patients were enrolled across 18 centers um, within four different countries. So India, Italy, Mexico, and Spain. And more broadly, the inclusion criteria was essentially uh, patients who had received a diagnosis of acute pancreatitis over the age of 18, according to the revised Atlantic classification. So essentially, they had to meet two of the three criteria of typical abdominal pain, having an elevated amylase or lipase at three times the upper limit of normal, and signs of pancreatitis on imaging. Um, and essentially, these patients had to present to the emergency room within 24 hours after pain onset and had uh, received a, a diagnosis no more than eight hours before they were enrolled into the trial. Patients were excluded if they met the criteria for um, moderate or severe pancreatitis at baseline. Um, so this includes people with shock, respiratory failure, or renal failure, um, and had baseline uh, heart failure or uncontrolled um, conditions such as hyperkalemia, hypercalcemia, or a shortened life expectancy of less than one year. Um, and so really more broadly, as it's an RC, 
CT, they were sort of randomly assigned to um, a one-to-one -one ratio to either receive aggressive fluid resuscitation or not. Um, and within the aggressive arm, um, they sort of had a very large volume of resuscitation. So an initial bolus of Ringer's lactate at uh, 20 cc's per kilogram of body weight, and that was administered over two hours. And that was followed by an infusion at a rate of three cc's per kilogram per hour. And in the moderate resuscitation group, um, these patients um, were given um, just um, infusion at 1.5 cc's per kilogram per hour um, without hypovolemia. Um, but if they were quite hypovolemic, they got a 10 cc per kilogram bolus initially. Yes, this all makes sense so far to me. I mean, randomized trial, it's unblinded. All these patients have pancreatitis and they are either getting the you know large, uh, extra large amount of fluids or moderate amount of large uh, of fluids. So three mils per kilo per hour or one and a half mils per kilo per hour. And of course, that's hard to get my head around. So we always think about the 60 kilogram person, but I don't know how many of those exist. So let's say if the person was like, I don't know, 100 kilograms, that would be 300 mLs per hour um, if they're randomized to lots of fluids or 150 cc's an hour for the moderate resuscitation. Okay, I get it so far. And then um, what were the outcomes in this study? Yes, uh, so within this study, they were looking at a primary outcome, uh, which was essentially the development of moderately severe or severe pancreatitis, according to the Atlantic classification that I mentioned earlier during their hospitalization. And they really followed sort of an intention to treat analysis within this outcome. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, the vast majority of randomized trials Intention to treat is the way to go. All right, so what did the uh, included patients look like? Based sort of on their table one, um, really the patients were quite balanced across the um, aggressive resuscitation group and the uh, moderate resuscitation group. Um, sort of across their age and uh, sex, they were um, quite balanced between around the age of sort of 55 to 60, um, and their um, composition was around sort of 50 to 55 percent um, uh, men to women, and um, generally more or more broadly, they had similar degrees of comorbidities, including similar BMIs, uh, type two diabetes, and similar BICEP scores, um, sort of indicating the severity of pancreatitis that they presented with. Um, and some analyses of this trial um, may have suggested that there may have been more individuals with gallstone pancreatitis in the aggressive uh, fluid group, um, but I think overall it was, it was truly quite balanced. Okay, cool. And yeah, I mean, you know, in a randomized trial, the magic of randomization is that the two groups will look the same at the time of randomization. Caveat, if the randomized trial is big enough. What does big enough mean? I don't know, maybe 500 some odd patients. So this is slightly on the smaller end, but still pretty darn impressive. Anyway, I will stop talking. What were the main results? What did they actually find here? Uh, so really what they found is that uh, per their primary outcome, there was no significant difference um, between each group in the development of moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis. Um, and more generally, um, they noticed that there was um, a larger proportion of individuals within the aggressive resuscitation group that went on to develop a very significant volume overload, um, which was sort of referenced within their safety outcome. Um, and that ultimately led to things like pro more prolonged hospitalization um, relative to those in the moderate resuscitation group. Maybe we have to do away with this, you know, hit the patient with tons and tons of fluids. Because like you said, you know, the primary outcome occurred in 22% of individuals with aggressive resuscitation versus 17% in the moderate resuscitation group. 
So if anything, the moderate group is kind of doing better, albeit with wide confidence intervals, blah, blah, blah. So, oof, okay, I'm a little bit worried. But uh, anyway, what are the main limitations of this study? Yeah, so there are several limitations to consider. Um, and like you mentioned, that this was quite a small uh, trial. Um, it was actually terminated at the first interim analysis. Um, and overall, it's technically underpowered to evaluate efficacy outcomes more definitely. Um, and I think another um, sort of caveat sort of within that small study is that um, a larger sample size would therefore be needed to really show superiority in either group. Um, but overall, that would expose many more patients to a much higher risk of fluid overload that was seen within their safety outcome. Another limitation is that this is a randomized control trial that was open label, um, which may have introduced bias. Um, but overall, I think that that was sort of necessary in conducting the trial um, so that they could adjust the fluid rate and address the volume overload that may have occurred uh, within the individuals in the aggressive resuscitation group, for example. Um, and I think another thing to mention is that even individuals within the moderate resuscitation group received quite a large amount of fluid. So there was a medium of uh, median of 5.5 liters of fluid given over a period of 48 hours um, for those in the moderate resuscitation group. And so um, I really do think that everyone was exposed to a lot of resuscitation um, more broadly. Um, I also think that um, the sample size calculation sort of assumed that 35% of individuals um, progressed to moderate or severe pancreatitis, um, but the actual rate that was um, sort of referenced within the trial or found within the trial was closer to 20%. So that was overall uh, underestimated. Yeah. And, you know, um, having taken part in a few randomized trials myself, I've learned it's really hard to get power calculations right. You almost always get them wrong. We almost always overestimate the event rate with some exceptions and I agree with you right when this study was terminated at the first interim analysis it was underpowered to evaluate the efficacy outcomes for sure again you know full disclosure also having done a randomized trial that was terminated I think after the second interim analysis but I should really know that um, it's really important to keep in mind if you see clear signs of harm, though, after the first interim analysis, that ain't going away, um, um, you, you know, even if it was larger. So I, I, I agree with the approach taken by the researchers. But you're right. You know, this is relatively small. Um, so there's always increased risk of uncertainty uh, when randomized trials are relatively small. Anyway, what's the take home point here? Uh, so I believe that the take-home point is really that um, in this sort of randomized assessment of aggressive fluid resuscitation compared with moderate fluid resuscitation for acute pancreatitis, uh, the use of aggressive fluid resuscitation led to a much higher risk of volume overload and did not really show the hypothesized benefit in disease-specific outcomes. I concur. And is this practice changing for you? I do think that it's practice changing. Even though technically it was stopped early, I really do think that there is a very large signal that aggressive fluid re administration results in an increased likelihood of volume overload and ultimate detriment to patients. And so I think that um, this primary outcome can be used to guide our current management. And I really do hope that um, people sort of apply this paper um, to their clinical practice. And I think that more generally, the tide has been changing um, and sort of turning against the use of aggressive resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. Um, and I really think that overall, this was a high quality study. And I think that it could push um, for a paradigm of change. Turning the tide from the waterfall trial. Okay, I hear your pun. I, I feel you for sure. And I think as well, you know, some really pointy-headed individuals might say, 
well, we can't change our practice. This is only one trial and it's relatively small. I call bullshit. So many things in, we do in medicine, we do based on zero randomized trials, okay? So I completely agree. I'm on service right now. This is practice changing for me. And great to see a pragmatic trial like this uh, end up in, in such a prestigious journal. All right, we will continue on. Uh, next up, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, this study was entitled Monkeypox Virus Infection in Human Humans? Yes, in humans across 16 countries, uh, published in July 2022. That's a very interesting uh, study. And what was the research question that they were investigating? To describe the presentation, clinical course, and outcomes of PCR-confirmed monkeypox virus infections. Ah, and I guess typically you uh, present RCTs uh, during the podcast. So really, uh, why was this important? And what made you want to choose something that was not an RCT? Yes, exactly. I, I've sort of broken my new rule of us just focusing on RCTs. Um, partly, I think it was kind of selfish. I sort of feel like I'm a little bit out of the loop when it comes to monkeypox virus. And I've never seen a patient um, uh, with this either. So I thought, okay, here's my opportunity to learn uh, about this virus. And I also thought, eh, maybe there's others out there who also feel like um, they could learn some more. So that's partially selfish. But I also think why it's important is, as I learned from reading this, a monkeypox virus is a zoonotic orthopox DNA virus related to the virus that causes smallpox. So it was first described in humans in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there have certainly been sporadic outbreaks of this infection, uh, particularly in Africa. Uh, but most often that's originated from contact with wildlife reservoirs, turns out in particular rodents. And here we are with a global outbreak. Yeah, it, it seems to be um, really spreading to many countries internationally very, very quickly. Um, and what type of study design did they implement within this uh, paper? So this was an observational cohort study. Uh, so they identified patients with um, PCR-confirmed infection uh, from April 2022 until June uh, 2022. So that's April, May, June. Three months of research and they end up in the New England Journal. Damn, I'm jealous, okay? Uh, and this was at study sites in Canada, the US, Europe, UK, uh, among other countries. And what I learned from reading this is that there is this um, network called the SHARE Network, which stands for Sexual Health and HIV all East research. I don't know what the All East part of it is, um, but the acronym is the SHARE network. So these investigators thought, you know, we have this network of researchers, of hospitals, of clinics. Why don't we roll up our sleeves and try to identify patients who come to our clinic with monkeypox and let's do some research. Let's describe um, what do these patients look like? That seems like a very incredible network, and it's great that they were able to sort of mobilize and create an amazing study from such a uh, significant uh, pandemic. Uh, what did their patients look like? So there were 530-some-odd patients with um, monkeypox, and um, the infections were, uh, I guess, diagnosed really um, based on swab results of um, uh, skin or anogenital lesions. 98% uh, of the infected individuals were gay or bisexual men. 75% uh, were white. The median age was uh, 38. 
40% also had HIV, um, and nearly all of the individuals, the HIV was very well controlled. So we're talking like 95% had an undetectable viral load. Um, in terms of the geographic distribution, 90% uh, of the individuals were from uh, Europe. Uh, at the time of infection, um, for a subset, they also tested for other STIs, and 30% had a you know, concomitant STI. They also took details in terms of their sexual history. Um, so the median number of partners was uh, five in the past three months, with a pretty wide interquartile range from three up to 15. Uh, they also asked about the number of individuals who had a smallpox vaccine previously. That was rare in 10%. And I think certainly what I was most interested in is the clinical findings, right? Um, when should I be thinking about this diagnosis when I'm seeing patients uh, in the hospital? So 95% of the patients had skin lesions. Um, most often, so 75% were uh, anogenital and 10% were palms or soles. I assumed it would be much higher in the palms because I feel like every time I see a picture on Twitter or somewhere else, it seems to be the palms. So that was an important teaching point for me. The lesion types range from macular to pustular to vesicular to crusted, and most of the individuals had less than 10 lesions. There was highly variable initial presentations, but most often individuals were presenting with um, the noted skin lesions. So I feel like that's generally what what brought people to care. 60% um, had fever and 60% had lymphadenopathy. Uh, and the suspected route of transmission was sexual close contact in 95% uh, of the individuals. Uh, when available, the median time from exposure to the symptoms was seven days and treatment was very rare. And that's because over 95% had pretty self-limiting illness. Okay. And um, what types of limitations did you encounter um, when reading this study? Yeah, I think the main limitation is, um, you know, it's a cohort study and it's a cohort study that likely represents a bit of a biased sample because they're leveraging this network and this network is predominantly um, related to, um, you know, HIV research. That might be why 40% of the individuals also had um, HIV. The fact that nearly all had an undetectable viral load to me makes me think, it's not necessarily that HIV put them at increased risk, maybe instead related to their sexual practices. Um, so, you know, this sort of uh, biased sample is certainly uh, a limitation. Um, also, you know, we're talking two months um, worth of enrollment uh, and, and recruitment, and I think things have changed a lot even since the time this came out. Uh, another limitation, I would love to know more details um, about treatment and when individuals do get sick, how does their presentation differ? Um, but fortunately, the vast majority of individuals do not develop severe illness, hence why it was so rare um, that any individuals developed that um, in this um, uh, cohort study. But certainly one complication uh, that they mentioned was um, pericarditis, but even that was um, really, really rare. So just a few uh, limitations. Yes, and I, um, I mean, it's, it's good to, to know that in individuals that do have um, other concurrent conditions like HIV, even if they're technically immunosuppressed, that they still um, have such a small progression towards severe uh, life-limiting disease. Um, it's also, I would be interested to see if um, there are other individuals that would conduct this cohort study in sort of like a non-share network and non-predominant uh, 
LGBTQ um, sample population to sort of see if the clinical presentations are similar or also to sort of um, focus more on the stigma associated with it. Um, for you, what was really the take-home point? Yeah, I think the take-home point for me, from a presentation standpoint, that the typical clinical characteristics are skin lesions, especially um, anogenital. So uh, I think especially in the area of COVID, we've all got a lot worse when it comes to doing physical exam. But if you're really worried about this diagnosis, you need to examine their anogenital region and looking for um, uh, lesions and really any type of lesions should raise um, your index of suspicion. Uh, also realizing that uh, in this subset, 98% were gay or bisexual, but that also means that there's a decent um, a percentage of individuals who won't be. And I think what's really important is um, what the authors said uh, in their discussion. And I, I want to quote them here as I'm scrolling down to their discussion. Um, but it was something to the effect of, um, although the current outbreak is disproportionately affecting gay or bisexual men and other men uh, who have sex with men, monkeypox is no more a gay disease than it is an African disease. It can affect anyone. We identified nine heterosexual men with monkeypox. We urge vi vigilance when examining unusual acute rashes in any person, especially when rashes are combined with systemic symptoms to avoid missing diagnoses in heterosexual persons. So I thought those are some really good uh, take-home points. The other thing, um, I think I was a little bit ignorant in terms of the route of transmission. Um, so if other listeners are as well, the predominant um, method of spread here is large droplets. That is a predominant method of spread um, as opposed to it specifically being, you know, sexually transmitted, for example, in semen. Um, I think that has sort of been a misconception. I'm really glad that they had that sort of disclaimer at the end of their discussion. I think that that um, it's very, very insightful and um, very important to share. Uh, for you, was this practice changing? Yeah, no, I think it was. It was like, okay, Mike, this is something you know very little about. And now I feel like I know something about this and I can teach trainees. Um, uh, and certainly something that I will um, continue to think about, especially when I'm on service or when I'm on uh, in Sault Ste. Marie, where I also am on, on call for dermatology. So um, this is sort of uh, uh, adding to my differential diagnosis, uh, especially when I, when I get a consult for anything derm related. I have learned a lot just from listening to this. Um, and so I guess moving on to our, our next segment, uh, do you have any good stuff to share? Yeah, you know, the good stuff is a continual plug for the good stuff that my research team members are doing. Um, two people in, um, in particular I want to flag, um, Jason Mogridge, who is an incredible um, uh, data analyst, and um, Tam, or I guess really Tamara Van Bakel, uh, just like a brilliant person, full stop. Um, uh, the two of them, myself and other team members, we cr we've created a tool called journowl.com. So at journowl.com, you can find uh, information if you're looking, where should I submit my you know, research project to? And we also on journal.com have a section where you can write reviews on the journals. Some journals are terrible to do business with and create so much fricking work uh, for us authors, whereas others are a delight. So anyway, so proud of my team um, that Journal is continuing to expand. That's what I have for good stuff. How about you, Justin? 
going back to your good stuff, I've definitely perused the journal and I, I give it a hundred percent. A very, uh, I, it's great. Um, my good stuff is a very interesting, or I guess it's an interesting stuff.、Um, it was a CBC article、uh, published this week about how Alberta is going to be the first province to regulate psychedelics for therapy. So things like、um, mushrooms, LSD, ketamine,、um, and it's very intriguing. I'm excited to see、um, how that helps people with various sort of mental health concerns, including PTSD. That is fascinating. And、uh, I'll, I'll have to see if my brother's aware of that. He, of course, is in Calgary, and I'm going to be there in a month.、Uh, no listeners. That doesn't mean I'm going to be trying psychedelics, but I do want to learn more.、Uh, that's another area I don't know enough. Uh, enough about, and it just seems like it could be a real untapped resource, especially for individuals with、uh, mental health disorders. All right, Justin, it's been a absolute pleasure. It's Friday, October seventh at seven thirty p.m. It's time for me to have a beer、um, uh, and and enjoy uh, the weekend. Uh, take care in Kingston, and let's do this again soon. The Roundtable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundtable. Thanks to our audio editors Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of the Roundtable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Sima Marwaha, editor in chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>